If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through the book of Daniel this fall. Uh, And when it's time to read the text, I would love some help. Uh, And so, could I have two or three, maybe even four, volunteers who would be willing to read a little bit of Daniel chapter 2? Any brave souls? All right, I see one, two, anyone else? Three, four, okay. Um, so, Melissa, Alan, Katie, Terry, uh, can you come maybe to these chairs over here? Uh, and when the time is right, we can take turns reading. Uh, so just over here. It'll be on the screen, yes. So you can read from the screen, uh, and we'll just take turns passing the mic around uh, when we get to reading. Thank you guys for being willing to jump in. Um, before we get to reading the text, a um, couple of reminders. The book of Daniel is a bit of an odd book. Uh, The first half is filled with stories, a couple of which are some of the most well-known, popular Bible stories of all time, right? You've got the uh, fiery furnace story, you've got the Daniel and the lion's den story. These are stories we have heard and and grown up learning if you grew up in, in church. The second half of the book of Daniel is filled with strange visions, which most people have either completely ignored or become entirely obsessed with. Uh, That tends to be uh, the way that things work. But despite the variety of genres in the book of Daniel, what we said last week as we began is that the whole book is essentially about the everlasting kingdom of God. That's the big picture of the book of Daniel. The stories and the visions all tell of God's everlasting kingdom. And so we began to see this last week in an unexpected way in chapter 1. The book opens with Jerusalem invaded, the king arrested, the temple plundered, and Babylon attempting to essentially brainwash the Israelite exiles, including Daniel and his friends. It appears that God's people and God himself have been defeated. But, as we saw in chapter 1 last week, the storyteller in Daniel insists that the king of Judah and the items of the temple were not taken by Babylon, but rather given by God. As Daniel and his friends train in Babylonian language and literature, we also see that it is God who gives them understanding and knowledge. So chapter 1 begins by showing us that even when it looks like God's kingdom is failed and fallen, God is still very much in charge because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 
And so at the end of chapter 1, we see God give Daniel the ability to understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And that comes into play in chapter 2, which we're looking at today. It's this suspenseful story about a dream and that dream's meaning. Verse 1, which we'll hear in just a moment, begins uh, with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar having a bad dream. But the story makes us wait all the way to verse 31 to hear about the dream or its meaning. The chapter is filled with suspense and mystery as we, it's sort of intended to keep its audience on the edge of their seats. So hopefully we can have that experience as well as we hear the story. So you guys ready? I'll join you in reading as well. We can just take turns down the line. Um, everyone read one slide, pass the mic, and then we'll, we'll keep going. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. <laughs> this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, so they, so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree I'm going to. Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, 
Mishael and Azariah, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise 
inferior to yours, next a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were part partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were plenty partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those things, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thank you guys for reading. You can return to your seats. Before we continue, let us pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for this story and this dream about your everlasting kingdom. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for helping to read uh, this story. Uh, so Daniel chapter 2, we have yet another story of Daniel and his friends in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, 
they are met with this challenge, uh, tell me the dream and interpret it. Uh, and then we have the story of the dream and its interpretation. Now, typically there have been two primary approaches to the content of this chapter. Uh, one of them is that it is primarily an example to follow. And then another way of approaching it is that it is a vision to decode. All right? Uh, on the one hand, many have looked to Daniel and his friends as inspiring examples, right? There are books and sermons that are all about how we need to be brave like Daniel. Uh, we need to have wisdom and courage like Daniel. Uh, and that's all well and good. And then on the other hand, there are many who have looked at the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, that Daniel interprets, uh, and tried to decode all the different kinds of metals that the statue is made out of and the kingdoms that they might stand for or represent, right? Is it Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? Is it Babylon and Rome and Europe and America, right? I mean, you just ask anyone in any decade and any century, they will tell you that it's probably about them and their context, right? Each attempt tries to, to predict the future, pronounce the ensuing end of the world, right? So these are a couple ways that stories like this have been approached. And each of them, I'm sure, has the best of intentions, trying to take a Bible text and apply it to our lives and to the world around us, right? It's a good example. It's a prediction of the future. But ultimately, these approaches fall short because they end up putting us at the center of the text. And they put us at the center of how we read it and what it must mean, right? Daniel's story ends up being one about me and my faith. Or the dream that is interpreted ends up being about us and our time. These are human-centered approaches to reading, and I think that they ultimately mislead us and end up leading us to miss the point, because the book of Daniel is ultimately not about me and us. It's ultimately about God and God's kingdom. So I want to keep this in mind as we reflect on Daniel chapter 2 today and Daniel through the rest of this series. Because when we keep God and God's kingdom as the central focus, what we see throughout this chapter is a stark contrast between two different kings and two different kingdoms. The drama of the story shows us two different kinds of kings. And the dream in the story shows us two different kinds of kingdoms. So let's begin with the drama of the chapter. The chapter opens with King Nebuchadnezzar and his subjects. He's had this bad dream, and he demands that they not only tell him what the dream means, but also tell him the dream to begin with, right? Tell me what the dream is and what it means. 
They all say, well, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. But he will not do that or perhaps cannot do that. Um, If they don't do what he asks, then he's going to cut them into pieces and turn their homes into piles of rubble. That's intense, all right? Most of the time, as we've read this story, we see it primarily as a ruthless demand from a ruthless king, a test to make sure that their interpretation of the dream is authentic, right? You can make up any interpretation you want if I tell you the dream, but if you tell me the dream and get it right, then surely your interpretation will also be right, And that's maybe what's going on. It's also possible that the king just woke up in a frenzy uh, knowing that he'd had a bad dream. Like many of us, maybe you've woken up and you had a bad dream, but you can't quite remember what the dream was. But you know it was bad. And so maybe that's what happened. Regardless, he goes to his you know, special people. He goes to his experts and tells them, Something bad has happened. Tell me the dream and tell me what it means. Whatever the case, his wrath is severe and his patience is short. So if they don't cough up the dream and its meaning soon, then they they and all of their homes will end up utterly destroyed. And then Daniel enters the story. And in the midst of all the fear and frenzy, he speaks with wisdom and tact, is what we're told. Hold on a minute, Daniel says. Give me a little bit of time, and I will sort this all out. Then the drama shifts. Then the drama shifts to an encounter with a different king. And that king's subjects. We see Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, also known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We see them gather together and pray to God. Verse 18 says, they plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And the very next verse tells us during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. This encounter between this king and his subjects is altogether different than the previous one. Rather than fear and frenzy, we see prayer and praise, right? After God reveals the mystery to Daniel, Daniel erupts in this beautiful hymn of worship. He says, praised be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness. Light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. 
right? This prayer is to a God who is both powerful and personal. He's the God of the heavens who reigns over all the kings of the earth. But he is also God of my ancestors who has met and continues to meet his people exactly where they are as he speaks to them and reveals himself to them. So Daniel 2 begins with two wildly different pictures of kings. First, there's a king who's wrathful and withdrawn. He either doesn't or can't share himself with his people, and he threatens to utterly destroy them if they don't do exactly as he says. And then there is a king who is caring and close, who meets his people when they speak with him and generously provides for them. And so what I want to ask you is this. Which of these two pictures most resembles your idea of God? Which of these two images of a king most resembles your idea of God? My guess is that there are many of us who have had a God that looks quite a lot more like Nebuchadnezzar than the actual God of Scripture. Many of us have often seen God as wrathful and withdrawn. Not only does he demand that we know his commands, but also that we follow them perfectly. And if we don't, then he will cut us into pieces and destroy everything that we've ever known. Right? Uh, That's been preached by many. It's something that we've not only come to believe, it's something we've often been taught. And so we, like Nebuchadnezzar's subjects, have often lived in fear with a theology that can easily be summed up, as it said in verse 11. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it except the gods, and they don't live among humans. Right? A God who is wrathful, a God who is withdrawn, a God who is inaccessible and angry, who demands the impossible and destroys whatever falls short. But this is not who God is. This is not who God is. Rather, God is a God who meets his people in prayer, and provides for them in their need. Daniel's prayer of praise begins in verse 20 by saying wisdom and power are his. But then in the conclusion of this prayer, in verse 23, Daniel says, you have given me wisdom and power. Do you see what happens here? This is a God who does not hold on to all the things that he has, but generously and graciously gives to his people 
as they ask. He does not withhold from his people, but lavishly gives and provides. It's why Jesus describes God as a good father, as a good caretaker. He teaches us to pray just as we have already this morning to our Father. And when we pray to him, we are to ask him to give us this day our daily bread because he is generous and he does provide. When Jesus speaks to crowds, he asks them, which of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Right? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? Well, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? This is who God is. This is what God is like. And far too many of us have been taught and believed that God is a king like Nebuchadnezzar, wrathful and withdrawn, brutal and demanding. But the story of Daniel shows us that God is actually a king like Jesus, generous and gracious, caring and close, powerful and personal. God is a good father, and you are his beloved children. That's who you are. That's the kind of king that God is. This is what we see in the drama of Daniel chapter 2. Two very different kinds of kings. And that brings us to the next part. The dream of Daniel chapter 2. And in the dream, we see two very different kinds of kingdoms. One of them is this great big statue. Verse 31 describes it as an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance, right? There's gold and silver, there's bronze and iron. It's this impressive and in many ways very awe-inspiring thing. The other kingdom is a rock. Just a rock. It's not a boulder. It's not a mountain, at least not yet. It's just a rock. There's nothing at all impressive about it. An amazing, multi-precious metal statue and a rock. The second one is it's just the kind of thing that lays on the side of the road, right? You pass right by it. You don't even notice it. And so this begs a question for us as well. When you imagine the kingdom of God, which of these images is more likely to come to your mind? Again, my guess is that most of us would like to imagine the kingdom of God like the precious and powerful metals of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. 
But Daniel 2 would have us imagine something altogether different. Something plain. Something simple. Something small. A rock. A little rock. But the most important difference about these kingdoms is not even the materials that they're made of, but rather the source that they come from. Verse 33 says that this rock was cut out not by human hands. And so this shows us that something small that's done by God is far more worthy of praise than something enormous accomplished by people. Something small done by God is far more worthy of praise than something big and impressive accomplished by people. We are often so distracted by the impressive and the flashy next big thing, right? And we end up missing the small everyday miracles of God's kingdom. We want to celebrate the, the big stories, the big things, the flashy moments, but God's kingdom often looks small and simple. God's kingdom looks like a short prayer in the morning or the evening or the middle of the day. God's kingdom looks like a, a smile or a greeting offered to a stranger. God's kingdom looks like a, a word of encouragement or perhaps a small act of service. These are all signs of God's kingdom, actions of love and joy and peace, the fruit of the Spirit. But we often miss them or overlook them or discount them. And, and, and here's the, the irony of the dream, right? That small, unimpressive rock ends up striking this big, dazzling, impressive statue, and the whole statue falls to pieces. It just falls apart, right? It all becomes like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. But then, the rock that struck the statue becomes a huge mountain and fills the whole earth. That's what 40, verse 44 describes as a kingdom set up by God that will never be destroyed. When I hear this dream in Daniel 2, I can't help but think of other stories, right? The story of the big, impressive giant, Goliath, who's taken down by what? A little stone. Or the stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God. It's like a tiny mustard seed that grows into a great tree and birds make their homes in it. It's like a little bit of yeast thrown into the flour that leavens the whole big uh, piece of dough, right? right? This is what the kingdom of God is like. 
No matter how enormous, dazzling, or impressive kingdoms of this world might be, only God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. As one scholar put it, no matter how impressive, glorious, or apparently eternal the empires and kingdoms of this world may seem, in the end, they all have feet of clay. In the end, they will all crumble. When we place our hope or our allegiance in the things of this world, we are destined for disappointment because those hopes will all end up being crushed just like the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But when we hope in God and God's everlasting kingdom, though things may look and feel like defeat, though we may live in exile, though we may face pain or persecution, and that hope might just feel like a small, obscure pebble on a footpath, that hope is bound to grow and grow from a small rock into the eternal mountain of God that will never be destroyed. And so I want to ask, where are you in the midst of this this morning? Perhaps your image of God needs a reset. Perhaps you've carried around a picture of God as wrathful and withdrawn, angry and arrogant, disappointed and demanding. And maybe you know in your mind that that's not true, but you still live as if it were, with fear, with shame. And if that's where you find yourself, then that picture of God is so much more like Nebuchadnezzar than it is like Jesus. And so what might it look like to see God as Jesus shows him? Good, caring, a father. What would it look like to see God as primarily in love with you rather than disappointed with you? How would that change your life to see God as Jesus shows him? How would it change the way that you pray to see God as Jesus shows him? How would it change the way that you read and approach scripture to see God as Jesus shows him? How would it change the way that you carry yourself in each moment of the day to see God as Jesus shows him? For others of us, perhaps what we need is a new vision for the kingdom of God. It's tempting to see it primarily as a dazzling flash of power and glory, of signs and wonders, of success and celebration. And if that's the expectation that we have, then we may spend a lot of time feeling disappointed or discouraged. Because we want that mountaintop experience. 
We want that exhilarating high. We want those typical signs of success and and victory and and so on. And, And truly, that mountaintop experience will come. But in the meantime, the kingdom of God is a rock on the side of the road, often overlooked and passed by. But it's a rock that will cry out, even as the king of this kingdom rides in on a donkey, not a war horse. We so often want a kingdom of resurrection without crucifixion. But Jesus shows us otherwise. He's called us to pick up our cross and follow him where he has already gone. And so his kingdom is found in small things, in humility, in service, in sacrifice, in small daily faithfulness, because he is faithful. And so as we consider the story, may we be a people who place our hope in God and God alone. One day, this small rock will become a mountain just as the cross has become resurrection. Jesus reigns. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Amen.